Bibles. Can, can anybody guess where we're going to be this, this, this Sunday? Mark, that's right. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 2, looking at verse 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. You know, one of my favorite things about uh, the time change and getting that extra hour of sleep is that I can preach for an extra hour today. All right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Mark, Mark chapter 2, look at verse 18 with me. If you're there, say there. All right, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you that are here this morning may be familiar with the name Johannes Gutenberg. In 1454, Gutenberg commercialized his invention, which would revolutionize the world, and that was the printing press with movable type. Now with this new printing press, there was able to be a mass production of books, including the Bible. They could produce the Bible with incredible speed and efficiency. Now in the time that it would take a scribe to copy one book of the Bible, they were able to print hundreds. This obviously was good because it allowed more access to the Word of God. Those that before couldn't have afforded Bibles or that wouldn't have had access to it because they were limited were now able to see God's word for themselves. Yet, Gutenberg's press was not without controversy. Within the religious community especially, many questioned the need for such innovation. Why should the Bible be produced in this new mechanized way? Wasn't it more sacred when painstakingly written and copied by the hands of the monks and monasteries. The religious authorities looked at this new technology and they saw it as a threat to the sanctity and the tradition of the church. And the reason I tell you that this morning is because much like Jesus' teachings in Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, Gutenberg's press was a catalyst for change that challenged the religious to the religious formalities that had dominated for centuries as you come to our text this morning we find jesus responding to a question that has been brought to him by an unknown group of people if you notice the last couple of weeks jesus gets questioned a lot first they said who gives you the right to forgive sins then they said why do you sit and eat with sinners and tax collectors. Now this group of people have come to Jesus and said, 
Why don't your disciples fast? At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has just finished feasting with sinners and tax collectors. And apparently, while Jesus and his disciples were feasting and celebrating and enjoying themselves, the Pharisees and the followers of John were fasting. And seeing the disparity between the two groups of religious leaders and people, this group of people came to Jesus and asked the question, why don't your disciples fast? What I want you to understand is that this question was probably not in good faith. So I highly doubt, based on the questions that are brought to Jesus throughout his ministry, that they truly wanted to know, like, Jesus, what's, what's going on here? Like, can you just help us to understand why you don't fast? But rather in questioning Jesus, they're trying to condemn him. They're trying to condemn his followers. In other words, what they're saying to him is, if you claim to be the Messiah, you claim to be this religious leader, you have all these crowds and multitudes following you, why aren't you partaking in the religious traditions like the Pharisees and the followers of John? In order to understand this question in Jesus's response, you first have to understand the role of fasting during Jesus's day. To fast typically is to refrain from eating food. So, you know, you can fast from technology, you can fast from other things. It's just a willing removal of something. So in this instance, and in most instances, when you speak of fasting, it's refraining from eating. I want you to understand that fasting is not a Christian diet, all right? (laughs) You know, you might end up losing weight because of it, but you don't fast in order to lose weight, at least spiritually speaking. But rather, the purpose of fasting is to deny yourself, it's to deny your fleshly desires and draw near to God in the process. When you're fasting and you're denying yourself, what you're saying is, Lord, I need you alone. Fasting was only required by the Mosaic law once a year. Fasting was required during the Day of Atonement or the festival of Yom Kippur. However, as a sign of their self-righteousness, these more religious Jews had taken up fasting twice a week. So they fasted on Monday and they fasted on Thursday. So this Mosaic law, this, this, this rule that was set by God to fast once a year had now been turned into 104 fasts a week. I hope my math's right there. I think that's 52 times 2. But, so they're, they're now fasting 104 times a year. And what you need to understand, though, is that the fasting of these Jews was not spiritual. It was not meant and done in the intended way that God had called for fasting to be done, but rather it had become a religious formality that fed their pride. Jesus did not come to uphold religious formalities. So as we dive into our text this morning, we will see that Jesus ushered in a new way. The tag for today's message is in with the new. Let us pray and then we'll dive into the exegesis of our text. Dear Lord, uh, again, we just thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your son, God. I pray that as we dive into this text this morning that you would give me wisdom, give me direction, that I would not say anything that you would not have for me to say that you would give me freedom in the pulpit, that you would make Jesus big, that you would be honored, glorified, exalted, Lord. Lord, that through your word you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would transform us into the likeness of your Son. 
Lord, we love you and thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 2, look at verse 18 with me again. Verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can not fast. So Jesus, as he responds to this accusation, this condemnation of this unknown group of people, he responds in two different ways. And the first way that Jesus responds, his first answer, he likens his arrival to that of a wedding and himself to the groom. Now, I know weddings today can get pretty extravagant and wild. My sister, she, she's a she does hair down in Jacksonville, Florida, but she, she does all type of beautician type stuff. And so she used to do um, makeup for weddings. And so down in St. Augustine, Florida, if you've ever been there, it's just a really historical, beautiful place. And they have these different uh, churches that you can rent out. And so th- these weddings that she was doing, these people are paying $150,000, $200,000 for these weddings. I mean, extravagant, just abundant weddings. But the Truth is that most weddings today pale in comparison to the weddings during Jesus's day. Most often when you think of fun and exciting weddings, you think of the reception to follow, right? You know, after the wedding, after they've said, I do, we then get together, we party, we enjoy ourselves. But during Jesus's day, the reception lasted seven days, all right? And this was leading up to the actual wedding itself. So A standard wedding celebration for a Jewish couple was seven days of feasting, seven days of wine, of food, of dancing, of singing. And the primary responsibility of the guests that were invited to this wedding was to share in the joy and join in the festivities with the groom and the bridegroom. Or, I'm sorry, that's the same thing, with the the bride and the bridegroom. (laughs) On the flip side, fasting is supposed to be a time of somber remembrance. Fasting is supposed to be a time of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. During the Day of Atonement, this this only day that was set aside for fasting, the Jews were supposed to have a time of serious reflection of their sins during the year. During this Day of Atonement, they were supposed to express their sorrow before God. As you look in the Old Testament, Noah, Nehemiah, when hearing about the destruction of the wall, fasted and prayed. In Jonah 3, after being warned about the coming destruction of Nineveh, the king proclaimed a fast. So it doesn't make sense that during a wedding celebration, someone would be fasting. I think we all understand that generally, hopefully, I guess, that a wedding celebration is a joyous, celebratory occasion. One Scottish theologian noted that in a hard-wrought life, the wedding week was the happiest week in a man's life. There was actually a rabbinic ruling that said that all in attendance to the wedding were relieved of all of their religious observances that would lessen their joy. As long as the bridegroom remained, there was festivity, there was partying, there was celebration, there was feasting. And only when he left would life return back to normal and they could go back to their observances and their routines that might include fasting. So Jesus 
in his answer, essentially what he is saying is, just as the groomsmen would not fast during a wedding celebration, my disciples do not fast while I am with them. In other words, my arrival and my presence is worth celebrating. Now, I know some people that probably feel the same way of Jesus, that their presence is something that blesses others. See, but Jesus here had a little bit more merit than your friends do. Jesus is not just alluding to a wedding celebration as a distant and a disconnected excuse to not fast, rather in naming himself the bridegroom. Jesus, once again, is claiming equality with God. In naming himself the bridegroom, Jesus was giving a messianic reference. The Jews knew that marriage was one of the oldest pictures in the Old Testament to help explain Israel's relationship with Yahweh, with with God. They had been married to Yahweh. They belonged only to him. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Listen, when the nation of Israel turned to foreign gods, they were said to have committed spiritual adultery. They were unfaithful to their husband. If you read in the Old Testament and you go to the book of Hosea, you'll see this relationship between Hosea and Gomer. And what this is is a picture. It's a representation of of God's relationship with the nation of Israel and Israel being this adulterous wife. Yet the whole time there is this desire of God to restore the nation to his favor once again. As Yahweh took the Jewish nation to be his bride. Christ, when he left heaven and came to earth, the bridegroom has sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you were to read John the Apostle's gospel, you would see that John the Baptist had already announced that Jesus Christ was the bridegroom. John 3, 28 through 29 says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled because he had stood in the presence of the bridegroom he had heard the voice of the bridegroom seeing and understanding this picture that jesus is presenting as the bridegroom that had came for his bride to redeem and to save his people jesus is saying the reason that my disciples do not fast is because the groom has come for his bride The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, it is a time to feast, not to fast. But as you continue in the text, you'll notice that Jesus says this celebration will not last forever. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. The language that Jesus uses here is forceful 
language. The bridegroom being taken, being snatched away from them. It's a picture of a violent removal of this groom. Jesus is saying there's a time coming where the bridegroom will no longer be present with the disciples. He'll no longer be present on earth with his followers because he will be forcibly taken away. And during those days when he is taken away, then they can cry and not celebrate. This is the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus hints at his coming death, revealing to us that Jesus understands the fullness of his purpose. Listen, Jesus knew that there was a day coming where he would no longer be with his disciples. He knew there was a day coming where he would be snatched away, where he would be unjustly tried for sins that he did not commit and die a death for sins that we did commit. So why don't the followers of Jesus fast? Because the arrival and presence of the Messiah was a time to celebrate, not to cry. It was a time to celebrate because the groom had come for his Bride. It was a time to celebrate because salvation was being offered to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It was a time to celebrate because finally man's redemption was about to come into play. What Jesus was trying to teach those then and us today is that Jesus brings joy and not sorrow. Listen, friend, Jesus brings joy and not sorrow. What that means for us this morning is that because death is dead, because Christ is alive, because salvation is free, we have no need to cry. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul says, Rejoice always. Listen, as a Christian, you have the greatest hope that is known to man. The Messiah has come. He's paid the price. He endured the agonies of the cross. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and because of that, you can rejoice always. You know, there are so many Christians that are just miserable. They're just disgruntled, nasty. You know, sometimes it's hard to understand how you could have the greatest hope in the world and be just so down all the time. Joy is the emotion of salvation. Listen, we are good news people living in a bad news world. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Listen, that doesn't mean that we are free from sorrow and agony. It doesn't mean that we don't ever hurt, that we don't ever go through hard times. But what it does mean for the Christian is that sorrow and agony, that miserable and disgruntled does not have to become our identity. That's not who we have to be, but rather, like David says in Psalms 30, we know that our sorrow and agony is not the end, but rather that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. And though Jesus could have stopped right there, and he would have had a great rebuttal to their accusations, he could have said, listen, the reason they're not fasting is because the Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is at hand, and there's no reason to cry. There's no reason to fast. There's no reason to be sad, but rather my disciples are people of love. They're people of joy. They're people that are excited and overflowing with the joy that I give to them. But Jesus instead follows up his answer for feasting rather than fasting with two parables. In both of these parables, Jesus is essentially 
repeating the same truth. And the truth that Jesus is trying to convey to this group of people that have come to him is that the old is not compatible with the new. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Most, I think most people understand that over time, cloth shrinks, right? Some more than others. Actually, I went to the store and got a flannel a couple weeks ago. Tried it on the store, looked good, fit good. So yeah, this is, the, this is the one. Went home and washed it, took it out the dryer, went to go put it back on and had to check the tag to make sure I grabbed the right size because cloth shrinks, right? So Jesus says that because cloth shrinks, that if you have a piece of old clothing that has a large hole in it, that you would not take a piece of unshrunk cloth, a new piece of cloth, a new patch, and stick it on that old cloth because what's going to happen is though it may fit at first, after it's been washed and dried, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink and it's going to pull the fibers of the old cloth and it's going to make the tear even bigger than it was to begin with. And look at verse 22. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. During Jesus' day, they would take leathered animal skins. Typically, it was the skin of a goat, and they would, they would leather them, and then they would sew them together into a pouch or a bag. And they would then use this leather animal skin bag and pour recently pressed grape juice or new wine into this bag. And once this new wine, this grape juice, was inside this bag, they would seal it up. And what would happen is that the fermentation process would begin. And when the fermentation process would start, there would be gases that would be released from this wine, and it would stretch out this bag. And so it would cause the bag to become brittle and lose its elasticity. So Jesus is saying that after they had used one of these leather bags for the fermentation process, they wouldn't then empty that out and take this old bag and set new wine in it again, because what's going to happen is it's going to set, the fermentation process is going to start, gases are going to expand, and it's going to pop. And you're going to lose both the wine and the wineskin. Listen, the point that Jesus is trying to convey here in these two parables is that the message of Jesus is the new wine. The message of Jesus is the new cloth. And the old forms of Judaism could not hold them. Jesus was making the point that the new order and the old order, which was symbolized by these religious formalities, are completely, completely incompatible. Jesus' claim is not, or his claim is, I'm sorry, that something new is happening. As we've already explored, the fasting of the religious was a mere formality it was a rote tradition there was nothing at all spiritual about it not only did they make this man-made tradition into a a letter of the law but also when they fasted the bible tells us that they would fast to be seen by men 
They didn't fast to glorify God. Jesus in Matthew 6, as he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the hypocrites and he warns against the hypocrites and the Pharisees would have fallen into this category. And he says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces so they may appear to men to be fasting. So they would go and when they, on Monday and Thursday, would fast, they would dishevel themselves, make themselves look messy, make themselves look like they were just tired and wore out. So then as they walked around, people would look at them and say, whoa, look how spiritual they are. You know, they're fasting twice a week. And Jesus follows up by saying, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. You know what their reward is? To be seen by men. That's it. Not to be blessed by God but rather to be seen by men. You know, and one thing I want to say to you this morning is that traditions in and of themselves are not bad. Actually, next week as we look in our text, we will talk even more about religious traditions. But rather, what I want to suggest to you is that when traditions begin to supersede Scripture, when traditions are elevated to the place of Scripture, when traditions overtake the place of Scripture, then we have a problem, and a big one. Listen, this group of people came to Jesus and condemned him and his followers. They were looking at him as less than others. Not because they were going against the Jewish law. Jesus was not breaking the Mosaic law but because they weren't upholding religious tradition. You know, even with our own traditions and church that we have, there are two questions that we need to be asking ourselves. The first question we need to be asking is, do we allow traditions of men to take the place of Scripture? And then the second question we need to be asking ourselves is, if we do an honest take of our traditions that we are so steeped in, what is the purpose? Is my tradition to glorify myself or my traditions that make me look more holy to make me look like I'm such a spiritual Christian or are my traditions truly to bring glory and honor to God Jesus came to do a new thing Jesus has come to provide and show the way to salvation that does not depend on human merit that does not depend on human effort. It doesn't depend on human ability. Listen, it doesn't depend on human accomplishments. The old order regulated behavior with rules. The new order that Jesus is bringing in regulated by relationship. Jesus did not come to reform Judaism as the prophets before him did. Jesus came to usher in a brand new entity, the church. Jesus came to do for us what the law can never do. Listen, that's what I want you to understand is that the Old Testament law was not put in place so that you could become righteous. You know, the Pharisees looked at the law. They said, if we follow all 619 commands, then we're doing all right. We're right with God. It wasn't put there so that you could have rules and regulations to merely follow. But Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ in justification by faith. In other words, the 
purpose of the law was not to give us a way to become righteous, but rather the purpose of the law was to reveal to us that we never would be righteous. This is why Christ came. Christ came to provide us with the righteousness that we need by the obedience of his life and of his sacrificial death. Listen, and Jesus submitted himself to the penalty of the law. Jesus has come to show us that salvation is not by what we do, that our right standing with God is not by what we do, but rather it's because of what Christ has already done. The Christian life is not a mixing of the old with the new, but rather it's a fulfillment of the old in the new. Listen, if you're here this morning and you are depending, depending on your faith and your work to make you right with God, I want you to listen to me. You are believing an anti-gospel. Anti-gospel. You know, those are harsh words. But what I want you to understand is that your righteousness before God is not come from yourself. It comes from Christ. At the last church I was at in Florida, the pastor there had taken over a church that was, quite frankly, steeped in tradition and had a lot of legalistic and pharisaical tendencies. And early in his ministry, he began preaching through the life of Jesus. He began shifting them to a gospel-centric model. He was trying to help them fall back in love with the message of the gospel, recognizing that it's only because of Christ, recognizing that their righteousness is in Christ, recognizing that They don't have to earn favor with God, but God has showed them favor by sending his son to die on the cross for them. And there was a lady in the church who was a longtime member that really struggled with this change of philosophy. No longer were the messages moralistic. No longer did the pastor stand up there and give you five ways to make sure you're right with God this week. No longer did the pastor stand up there and tell you what to dress and what movies to watch and where to go and who to avoid. And one day out of, after service, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth spoke. And this lady went to the pastor there and said, all you ever do is preach about Jesus. All you ever do is preach about Jesus. In other words, for her, Jesus was not enough. Jesus was not enough for her spiritual growth. She needed rules. She needed regulations. She needed a guide to follow. She needed to be told what to do, how to dress, how to talk, what movies to watch, what people to stay away from. And you know, we hear that and kind of flabbergasted. It's like, really? Like, isn't that what church is supposed to be? But the truth of the matter is, when we're honest with ourselves, whether we want to admit it or not, so often our hearts long for the gospel. We long for grace, we long for freedom, we long for the forgiveness that Christ offers us, but our flesh desires the law. See, because with rules and regulations to follow, we can then feel like we've accomplished something. We want this pattern set out for us, so then I can say, well, I checked off every box this week, and then we can feel good about ourselves. Listen, but Jesus came to offer something much better than rules and regulations. 
Jesus came to offer salvation by his death, and he came to offer sanctification and growth in Christ's likeness by his spirit. If you're here this morning on the other end, see, there's some that look and they say, I need rules and regulations, follow. But then on the other end, there's some people that say, well, if there's grace, then surely that's a license to sin, right? That if I sin more, then that just means God's grace is going to continue to cover my sin. So it shouldn't matter what I do. It shouldn't matter how I live. And if that's you here this morning and you're reasoning in your hearts that because of the grace that God extends to you, that you can live however you want because you're no longer bound to the law. Can I suggest to you this morning that Jesus did not come to patch up your old life. He came to do something new. There's a group of Christians that view Jesus as nothing more than an accessory. That view Jesus as a side addition to my normal life. That I'll add a little Jesus here and a little Jesus there. That, you know, I'll do what I want to do over here, but as long as I get back and, you know, I go to church Wednesday and everything's going to be all right. I'm reminded of the popular bumper sticker from when I was a child. It said, Jesus is my co-pilot. Listen, church. Jesus did not leave heaven and come to earth. Jesus did not live a perfect and sinless life. He was not tempted by Satan. He did, was not re- despised and rejected by men. He was not led to the cross. He did not suffer the agonies of Calvary in order to be the co-pilot of your life. Listen, Jesus died a death on the cross to be the Lord of your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Listen, when you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, the old is gone and the new has come. You're no longer bound by sin. Let's understand, it doesn't mean that you no longer struggle with sin, that you're no longer tempted by sin, but what that means is that sin is no longer your master. And because sin is no longer your master and you've been made new in Christ, you can say, like Paul said in Galatians 2, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Becoming a new creation affects the way that we live. No longer do we live guilty by the law but rather we're spurned to obedience and good works because of the atoning death of Christ. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Guilt is a terrible motivator and an even worse master. But Christ. But Christ. Listen, there's no better master. There's no better motivation than to know that God himself loved you enough to go to the cross and die on your behalf. Jesus did not come to perpetuate the old. He came to bring the new. He came to bring grace, freedom, 
forgiveness. You know, as we look at this text, the real question is not, why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? But rather, the real question is, why didn't the Pharisees and the religious feast and celebrate? The Messiah had come. Salvation was here. The kingdom of God was at hand. With the coming of the Messiah, Judaism had to give way to Christianity. And rightly so, because in Jesus, Hebrew faith finds its full fulfillment and completion. And what I want to tell you this morning is that in Christ, you too can find full fulfillment and completion. Every head bow and eyes closed.